I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Indie Football Podcast. Happy international break to one and all, or should I say, merry deadline day, because football's biggest circuit is coming up shortly. There's sure to be plenty of talk about that, uh, not least on this podcast. But first, before we move on to what might happen, we have to discuss what has happened and, more importantly, what that means. So needless to say that on my own, I have absolutely no chance of making sense of it all. So I am today joined by the life and soul of indie football, our men with their boots on the ground in the Northwest and in London. First of all, it's our very own northern powerhouse, Mark Critchley. Say hello. Hello. And of course, our man about London town, double the surnames and twice the talent of your average man. It is Jack Pitbrook. Hello, Ed. Uh, very good to see you both. So uh, without further ado, let's get on to the football. And if you hadn't noticed, there were some fairly significant results this weekend, not least the game at Anfield that you were at, Mark. Thanks. Liverpool 4, Arsenal 0. Firmino, Mane, Salah and Sturridge with the goals. But really, this is a game of two issues. Liverpool being really, really good mm-hmm. and Arsenal being in crisis or in crisis in italics. So first of all, talk us through Liverpool. Liverpool. Um, okay, so what struck everybody about Liverpool was just how frightening their attack were. And um, we've known that already. We saw in the win over Hoffenheim in midweek before that just how devastating they could be. But um, I think the evidence was there for all to see. Salah, Mane, Firmino, they are probably the most dangerous attack in, in the Premier League this season. More so than Manchester City, you think? I think so, definitely at the moment. City... We saw in pre-season, we expected them to really obliterate this league from mm-hmm. the off and, and really set the pace. But um, Liverpool just have, it seems to gel a little bit more. It seems to click a little bit more. There don't seem to be those issues about like City have about rotation. Um, at the moment, they have three players in form and firing and they just look like the best attacking unit in the league at the moment. So Liverpool's attack really clicked. Uh, we predicted them to be scary in attack due to the speed and the movement, which is obviously the thing that, that decimated Arsenal. Mm-hmm. Kind of just ripped them that that weak defence just ripped them apart. But we said that Liverpool's defence is a barrier to a title challenge. Do you think that's the case still? We did get a listener question. Um, we take these from the okay. review section on iTunes. So if you want a question asked, please do leave one in there for me to ask the guys. And Cop Brian asked, it, would Virgil Van Dijk alone be enough to fix a defence that, especially at set pieces, does seem poorly coached? I think. Um, okay, I wrote a piece about this a couple of weeks ago that uh, looked into the set piece problem after the Watford game and. My conclusion there, like Jamie Carragher on Sky Sports after the Watford game, was that Van Dijk isn't necessarily going to fix the issue. But the issue itself is a bit different from how we tend to think about it. Yes, Liverpool concede from set pieces, but by no means are they the worst team in the league at conceding from set pieces. The problem is they, they don't concede many chances from set pieces, but when they do concede those chances, more often than not, they tend to go in. Um, would Van Dijk help that? maybe slightly, but I think the problem is that they need to stop giving away those high-quality chances on set pieces. And, um, yeah, I'm not convinced yet whether Van Dijk would... It's, it seems more of a systemic issue than a personnel issue. And, of course, in other Liverpool news, uh, Naby Keita will join the club, albeit next summer, mm-hmm. in, in a big deal. Um, I mean, it's a weird one. 
really. The whole he's gonna play the entire season with Leipzig yeah. before coming over. But does that mean that maybe they see themselves as title challengers next season? Or is this just is this just kind of a getting over Coutinho sort of thing? Well, Coutinho, you know, uh, all the noises at the club are that Coutinho's staying. So sure. let's put Coutinho to one side. Three weeks ago, it looked like this deal was dead in the water. I was on this pod saying it's not going to happen. I meant this summer. I, yeah. always, there, was always, there was always a sense Well, he had that, the clause next summer, so yeah. it was always likely, right? It was always likely to go ne- uh, next summer. And I, I wrote a piece at the time as well saying that by waiting, Liverpool had only made it more complicated. It made it a bit messier. You know, you, you give the chance for the likes of Barcelona and other top cl- clubs to come in for him. Um, to get this over the line now, to get him in the bag, to get it nailed, I think it's a great piece of business, to be honest, in a summer where we questioned Liverpool's transfer uh, strategy. And um, yeah, title challenges. Look, I mean, let's leave next season to one side. We don't know how everybody else is going to line up. This season now, I think, you know, we've seen City's problems. They still have a few problems. They were most of our favourites. I think it's really open this season and there's no real ceiling on what Liverpool can do. I'm not saying I'm not saying they're going to win it, but they could definitely challenge. And um, let's concentrate on the here and now. They've got Cater to look forward to, but everything's going pretty well for Liverpool right now. I think uh, as, as impressive as they were, Arsenal were absolutely dreadful. Jack, uh, you're our Arsenal man, really. You, you cover them a lot. They are prone to these disastrous games, but they often go on and they go and hump a couple of lower mid-table teams 3-0 soon and everyone will forget about this. But the real issue is that we know what their ceiling as a club is under Wenger and it seems to be getting lower. They're definitely not going to win another Premier League title with him in charge, it feels like. With that in mind, do the club have to move on from him as soon as possible? Yeah, I mean, I think that's now beyond question that they need to replace Wenger with a new, better, modern manager. Uh, a manager who gives them more organisation, a manager who gives them more identity, uh, a manager who can kind of update the team in a, to stop them from being left behind. Because at the moment, they, that is what's happening. I mean, Ma- Manchester City, Manchester United, Chelsea, Liverpool and Tottenham just play a much, a much more focused, intense, modern brand of football than Arsenal do. I think I think that has been. I mean, I've thought that certainly since he signed his contract in 2014, the one before yeah, the one he yeah. signed this summer. And I said at the start of that season that there was no, I mean, obvious benefit to him staying around. I'm not claiming any insight in doing so because there were other people who were calling for his head as early as 2012, 2011, yeah, 2010. Yeah. I think in retrospect, we now know that those people were right. Um, the big question really is how on earth have they got into this position where I mean, people people always used to talk about Arsenal as being, oh, well, the great thing about Arsenal, it's like Manchester United. You put all the power in one man, and because that man is brilliant, everything works well, which is now, you know, down the line, been revealed to be nonsense, or at least it's nonsense now. Well, the difference may be that Fergie really moved with the times. Actually, for an, for an old guy, he actually changed a lot. If you think of the things that Arsene Wenger was good at when he came, o- came over from uh, Japan, actually, it was in uh, the 90s, he was tactically smart. You know, he changed little things that, that caught the English teams off guard. He improved the squad's nutrition at a time when players were going to the pub after training. He had an edge on the transfer market and exploited that to sign some of the Premier League's greatest ever players, Patrick Vieira, Thierry Henry, but also middling players like Emmanuel Petit, who were important to those teams. So that's just like a few of the great qualities they brought, he brought to Arsenal 20 years ago. But all of those edges have been diminished. What advantage does Wenger give you over any other Premier League manager now? Well, I'd say that 
from a from a coaching perspective, I think he's I think he's good. I think he is good at talent spotting. I think yes, he has agreed, signed yeah. some good players uh, who might not have been obvious to other teams in the last sort of decade. Uh, Lauren Cristiani, Santi Cazorla are the two that stand out yep. for me. Uh, I think he's good at encouraging good players to play well. He's good at creating an atmosphere which encourages the players to express themselves, which is what he's always been about. Um, and you know that works up to a point, but in the modern in the modern in the modern game where everything is so planned and so detailed and so focused and so prepared, I just think he's left behind. I think that there is. I was talking to a friend about this the other day. Um, and I was—I basically gave him the same thing I just said to you. What advantage does Wenger give you over any other Premier League coach other than stability and gravitas? Because he does have this sort of sense of, because he's been there for so long and, and he is respected. But if you bear in mind that stability here actually means stagnation and, and gravitas is a reputation he has earned but is slowly destroying, I, I do wonder, like you said, he does have a great eye for a player. He spots some great players, but he's not really brought any of them on. And, and that actually brings it to another thing I want to discuss, which is Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. He spotted guys like Aaron Ramsey, uh, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, even um, Rob Holding, uh, you know, at lower league clubs. And he spotted them and thought, I need to bring this guy in. You know, he saw it with Wilfred Zaha. He, you know, they were very interested in Zaha before he went to Manchester United. He's good at spotting young players, but he does not bring them on particularly, apart from, I mean, like Thierry Henry, who he turned into a, a top, top striker from a winger. Not, there aren't many examples of players that he's turned from young potential talents into world beaters. Yeah, I mean, again, I wouldn't argue with any of that. I think that, I think this is one of the sad things actually about Arsenal in the last five or six years is they they had... Like they signed more or less the right players, I think. Like they signed a generation of young English players, or in Ramsey's case, Welsh, who they could bring through and could be the spine of the team in this decade. And yet it hasn't really worked out for any of them. And I think, I, I mean, I think the most plausible explanation is that the coaching at Arsenal is insufficiently focused. It's that it's too much about creating an ethos of an, an environment where players can go and express themselves and it's not sufficiently about in this situation you do this in this situation you do that and that kind of like Mourinho, Conte, Pochettino, yeah. Klopp, Guardiola style uh, specificity and I think that certainly in the case of Oxlade-Chamberlain I think he I think Chelsea's a great move for Chamberlain I think he will be so much better under Conte than he was under Wenger I think that Aaron Ramsey at any of the other big six clubs would be one of the best midfielders in the Premier League. I think that's indisputable. That's interesting because Ox is going to be almost like an acid test, really, of of what you get from 2017 version of Wenger compared to a 2017 version of Conte, who is part of a new generation of, of coaches who've come in, did brilliantly last season. I agree. I think Conte, in terms of tactics and individual coaching, could be the best in the league. So you'll be able to see the difference between what, what Wenger provides and what Conte gives you as a coach. Critch, I want to bring you back in. What do you think of Arsenal just firsthand at the weekend? The weaknesses? Mm -hmm. um, is it, is it, did they look like a rabble, do you think? Or was it just poor game I plan, mean, poorly executed? Yeah, I mean, so about 60 minutes in, the result was clear. And I start trying to write my report and my introduction and you just struggle to find an adjective strong enough to describe how bad they were. I think I went for insipid in, at the time, but it could have been anything. It could have been pathetic, you know, um, just plain embarrassing because they were just 
all over the place from the first minute and it's the same old issues. I know this this is parroted a lot, this line, but it is. It's defenders that don't know how to defend one-on-one and, and just brick it when they've got runners yeah. going at them. It's no control in midfield. I, we always get a bit of stick for reading too much into 90 minutes of one game, but it felt like significant this because they're up against the side that went into the season with very much the same expectations as them. Um, Arsenal themselves have always been a top four team. They've always been, uh, apart from last season, of course, but up until then, they were always confident that they would retain that place and be in the Champions League. And it just feels like now they are by far the weakest of that top six. And if there's any club in that top six that is going to be ushered out of it at any point soon, it will be them. Because there's just, like you say, stagnation. There is no change. They work in an entirely different way from every other team that they compete against. I don't see... I was personally thought he should have left at the end of last season, regardless of the FA Cup triumph. And I don't see the way out for them without him going. So Liverpool, very impressive at the weekend. Uh, They're up near the top of the table. Arsenal drifting a little bit. It is Manchester United who are top. That's another game that you were at, Critch, this weekend. Um, I must admit, I have not seen it. Rashford and Fellaini late on with those goals. Mm -hmm. Impressive again from United, who have now scored a bundle of goals and and not conceded, is that right? Barely conceded. Um, Is it just that they haven't played a good team or is this uh, a real bounce-back season from uh, a club that's kind of spent the last few years disappointing? I mean, um, there's definite changes there. So with Lukaku, he's always looking to play off the shoulder. He offers something much more than Ibrahimovic. The whole attack looks more dynamic and exciting. Is um, that because of Lukaku? The whole he's changed their attack. Do you think that's fair to say? I think Lukaku's an element of it. I think yeah, and you know, once you've once that focal point is radically different, it brings the other attacking players in as well. So. Um, uh, Mata and uh, I know it was Marshall at the weekend but Rashford before him and Mkhitaryan behind they just look like they're a little more comfortable it suits them a little more playing with a striker who's got a bit of pace in behind and who makes those runs um, Zlatan because was great but, Zlatan you know, was exactly that Zlatan was great but he does have that thing where he, he, he slows the, the slows down. It down he slows it down and he usually then produces something fairly magic you know mm-hmm. uh, I thought he was brilliant last season but there is that element with Lukaku is you do have the, the obvious pace and power, but he just stretches the defence far more than Zlatan ever yep. will. Yeah. So Lukaku has, has changed the attack a bit. Mm-hmm. Mourinho's teams are always better in the second season. We know that. But you think this is it, essentially a better attack is all they needed because they can be good defensively. Very good defensively. Anywhere. I think, yeah, a better attack was needed. Um, but like you say, um, it's been a it's been a fairly, you know, it's a favourable start for them. Um, they weren't as slick as against West Ham. They didn't have that shifting gear that they had against Swansea. But they controlled this game against Leicester. Leicester are a better side. Leicester are a better side. Uh, they controlled it. Um, they didn't ever really look um, like they were going to lose it. Uh, it was nil-nil for a long time. Once the breakthrough came, they looked comfortable. Their first game against another top six club is in mid-October, I think, when they play Liverpool. So they've got a chance now to real build up ahead of steam and kind of, you know, they could win the next three games for the next international break. Um, the question will be how they play in those big games because I think maybe this season, Mourinho's made a lot of noises already that they're going to go out and try and win every game, but then he kind of tempers it by saying, you know, sometimes it will be sensible to play for a point. He's mentioned that in nearly every press conference that I've been to so far. 
So we'll see how they play in those big games. I don't know if they can get away with doing the standard Mourinho thing of like they did in the Manchester derby at the end of last season, yeah, yeah, of just yeah. playing for a point. Because if they, you know, maybe well, they can. Well, if, if, they're they put mo- those... if they're mowing all these mid-table yeah, teams. Yeah, maybe they can in that case. Especially but... away from home against the top six. Mm-hmm. You've got to say you take a point every time. Yeah, it, it just feels like a lot's going to be decided on those games this season because, um, you know, we've, we've seen Liverpool have the ability to put those teams away now maybe as well, City too. Uh, I think a lot's going to hinge on those games and um, United at least have the chance to build up a strong advantage before they play that first one in October. From one manager on fire in Jose Mourinho to two managers under fire, uh, Frank De Boer and Slavin Bilic, both fighting for their jobs already after just three Premier League games. Uh, both defeated at the weekend. Palace losing 2-0 at home to Swansea. Newcastle uh, just dusting off West Ham. 3-0 victors at St. James's Park. Jack, Frank De Boer uh, has come in. He's, he's tried to implement this, this 3-4-3 formation. Perhaps there aren't any players that it actually suits in the squad. These issues don't look like they can be solved easily, do they? No, I mean, obviously, there is a big clash between, I mean, what is essentially a long ball squad and a possession football manager. Now, if if Crystal Palace brought in Frank de Boer and expected him to get instant results when he is completely at odds with the players they have, is that his fault or is that Crystal Palace's fault? I mean, you're close to this than me. What do you think? Well, I think there, there are some problems in terms of uh, people have been unimpressed by how inflexible he's been um, in terms of he has come in with this idea of this is the shape I play without really considering whether the players are suited to it. And then he's gone and tried to shoehorn some players in in positions that don't really work. He already knew he wasn't going to have a lot of money to go and remodel the squad to fit the the system. So it was basically going to come down, are you a good enough coach to coach this into these players? And the answer seems very clearly to be no so far. He hasn't necessarily got off to the best start. Uh, some people have said he's a bit cold with the players, kind of a peculiar man management style. And I mean, that could be just a little cultural clash. It could be whatever. But these guys have had, I mean, there are people in this squad that were brought in by Ian Holloway, by Tony Pulis, by Sam Allardyce, by Alan Pardew. They're all different guys, but they are all fundamentally people who are very popular with the players, who are man managers. I think De Boer is uh, more of a technical coach supposedly but he hasn't been able to transmit any of his ideas to the players which is absolutely crucial if you are going to be a manager who is is trying to do things with a completely new shape a completely new system he had what a couple of months really to to get this into them but it it hasn't worked whenever they've switched back to the 4-3-3 they've looked better so now he is under pressure It, it seems like the club hierarchy from what I understand people like Steve Parrish have been unimpressed by by his inability to kind of bend um, the talks that have gone down. It looks like he's going to cling on to his job for now. It does look like he's going to hold on. They will be very active in the transfer market over the next couple of days. But I just wonder if, almost if Palace will ever hire an interesting manager again, because this philosophically this hasn't seemed to work that well. And already he could turn this around and we could laugh about this in, in December. But at the same time, it doesn't, look at the moment like it's going to be destined for success and this is the first time Palace have hired a manager from outside the British Isles so I do wonder how this will go down do you think Parrish uh, is getting a little bit of a reputation not purely his own fault but he has now had a lot of managers in, in the time he's been in charge of the club what do you think Jack 
Yeah, I think I think he is. I think the big structural problem there is that they have this quite solid, well-established group of players, basically British players now plus Christian Benteke. And those are a group of players who are obviously best managed by a certain type of English manager. And you went through the managers earlier. They've they've gone through almost every manager like that. And unless they're going to rip up the whole squad, yeah. which is incredibly expensive, it does make more sense for them to continue to find managers in that vein. And therefore, I would expect Pat. I mean, it looks like this isn't going to work. I would expect De Burr to eventually go and probably be, be replaced by another English manager who can give these players the type of football they're comfortable with. For balance, um, from the De Burr side of things, the feeling is that he is being presented with, should we say, presented with players as potential transfers who aren't, he thinks, up, up to the quality needed or or perhaps you know the sort of player that he wants yeah. um i have tremendous sympathy with the burp because it's not f- like i mean he is what he- hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. He is. That, that is the football that he's played They knew career. that when they hired him. That is the football that won him stacks of trophies with Ajax. You can't get someone in knowing how they work, knowing, how, knowing what has brought them success... And then say, oh, by the way, can you not do it that way? Do it our way. Don't do it the Dutch way. Do it the English way. Is it, it doesn't make any say, sense. Is it fair to say that he needs to succeed at Palace, given what happened at Inter Milan? No, not really. I mean, he walked into a nightmare of a situation at Inter uh, with Chinese owners who didn't really know what they were doing. Um, he came in right. He came in so close to the start of the season that he couldn't get any plans in place, and it was no. I mean, it was no surprise it didn't work out. I think that you know two. Fo- Two failures don't make him a bad manager if he does to fail here, as it looks like he probably will. And I'm sure that there were, there were plenty of other clubs where he could go and work well if he was working in the right environment with the right players. So assuming De Boer does stay, there will be a lot of transfer activity before Thursday. You can expect a backup striker to come in to uh, compete with Christian Benteke. Mamadou Sacco is, is still that prime target in the defence, and I think they want to bring in one or two defenders. You could see some leave, including the likes of Martin Kelly, Johan Kabai, could be a casualty just because uh, he's not even getting in the first team at the moment and he takes a huge chunk of the, the wage bill up. But I want to move on to another manager who's having a tough time with it, and that's Slavin Bilic. West Ham have got off to a dreadful start. Jack, I know you said last week that tactically they're one of the worst teams in the league. Uh, Critch, you've seen them this season and get mm-hmm. eviscerated by Manchester United. Yeah. What were your thoughts on United and, and specifically Bilic? Um, West Ham that day just disorganised really apart from maybe you could argue the first half an hour where they looked like they would put up some kind of fight uh, after that it just kind of devolved into this mass of like players who have a reputation I, I remember reading an interview with Billich where he said we're bringing in players who have something to prove well I don't know like 28 year olds who you know have had a middle in Premier League careers like Marko Arnautovic or whatever of like course. it's not I don't see what they've got to prove I think it seems like a place where everything's far too comfortable for them at the moment. What I would say is that they've got special mitigating circumstances because they've played every game away from home at the minute and they can't play a first... Their first home game is after the international break against Huddersfield. 
if they get a result there and things pick up, at least in the short term, you imagine Bilic will be given, uh, you know, a little bit of time. But again, it comes back to the question of what's the long term plan? It's a very ambitious club that wants to be to break into this top six mould or, you know, challenge for European places. They've got the stadium behind them now as well, but there's no overarching strategy there. Oh, I think my big problem with West Ham has always been that the transfer policy is bizarre. Mm. It does seem to be very driven by the owners, which I think is never healthy. Um, you had David Sullivan and David Gold coming out and taking credit for all the ones that go well and then sacking managers yeah. for ones that don't go well. Uh, what's, your, what's your gut feeling? De Boer and Bilic, who goes first? Um, well, I think De Boer will probably go first because I think Steve Parrish ultimately makes better decisions than David Sullivan. I agree, think agree. I think that uh, I think Parish is you know Parish has been in that job long enough to know that when something isn't working and it, there, there comes a point where you've got to pull the cord and get someone else in. Billich is a strange one. I mean, Billich should have gone in the summer. We're now in this strange position where he's in the last year of his contract, which is incredibly rare for a pre- to happen to a Premier League manager, except for Wenger, who is a kind of unique, unique case himself. Um, I think West Ham should have got rid of him last year. Uh, they were thinking about it right up until the end of last season. They spoke to Marco Silva. They spoke to David Wagner. Uh, and then West Ham beat Tottenham. Remember that game yeah, at home? Yeah. And Sullivan realised, oh, well, Sullivan thought that he turned it round. And, you know, there was also a reluctance at West Ham to pay Billich off, which they would have to do. So they kept him. I think that I imagine Billich will probably stay until it, until it looks as if they're going to go down. I think Bilic will probably stay. And maybe the ideal situation for West Ham is that he sees out the last year of his contract, they shake hands, say goodbye in the summer, as happened with Allardyce, and they don't have to pay him any extra money. I, I'd be surprised if they're in a comfortable enough position to be able to do that. And my guess is that they will have to pull the trigger at some time around Christmas and get someone better in. Yeah, my, uh, my feeling also, I think... Um, well, on Sunday I was told that De Boer was a dead man walking. It looks like they might have... have talked it round but he is a guy who is desperate to succeed you know even when he was just in consideration for the job the people that I was talking to who know Frank were saying he really really wants this job he likes the project and everything whereas Bilic has been there a little bit longer I think we've seen more of him West Ham probably know what his ceiling is as a manager now and I'm not sure that they're convinced by it or or by him Um, Critch do you have any any last thoughts on on Bilic De Boer? I think De Boer seems more likely to go first um, for the reasons Jack's just outlined, really. Um, back on Parish, I think you just have to ask, why why hire a manager that you are willing to sack after losing three games? You know, where's the, where's the thought process there? Um, well, they spent a lot, they spent five weeks hiring, hiring a replacement for Allardyce. Um, but at the end of the day, you can only get so much from talks with the guy. Once Then once you've worked with him, and, that, and that, that's the thing, I guess, that they've, thought from working with him mm-hmm. they've seen that some of the players aren't aren't enjoying it um i won't name them but they're you know at least two or three senior players who aren't that impressed by De Boer so far and if the hierarchy aren't impressed with the way that he's been able to work with the squad then there's no way you could know that from a job interview he is an impressive guy on paper as a cv if you write off the inter stuff uh, do you think Bilic, like we've seen the best from him already I think that first season, West Ham kind of found their top level, yeah. and um, They're riding the Payette wave. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, realistically, that is that is almost their limit at the moment, unless there's 
serious investment in the squad. So, yeah, perhaps so. I think I think it's, time's up really, and it's uh, time for a change. So across London in Wembley, we had uh, Tottenham against Burnley at the weekend. Jack, you were there. Uh, Chris Woods, ninety-second minute equaliser, grabbing Burnley a point. Weird start to the season for Spurs, but you're also at Man City, Bournemouth on Sunday, uh, Saturday, and uh, I'd like to get a takeaway from you from each of those games. What was the one big thing that you brought away from the Vitality and also from Wembley? Well, the one big thing I brought away from the Vitality after Manchester City's—I've got two things actually. One, Manchester City were unconvincing. But two, and this has been quite a big story over the weekend, was the scandalous treatment of the Manchester City fan yeah. by the stewards at Bournemouth, who, you know, some guy ran on the pitch, as often happens at away ends after a 97th minute winner. He was held onto, he was held onto the ground uh, in what must have been real physical distress. Sergio Aguero basically told the steward to lay off yeah. him. Uh, the stewards then told the police that he had been assaulted by Aguero. Um, and then on Saturday evening, I think after reviewing the footage, that accusation was withdrawn. Uh, it was a really horrible moment because I think it underlined how basically the, the problem that we have in football now, which is heavy handed stewarding and policing of fans, particularly away fans, which is at odds with how English football likes to sell itself as being this kind of the home of the sort of noisy, boisterous, authentic atmosphere. And yet, the people that generate that atmosphere themselves are treated like animals. I, I think I think it's a, a very strong point because I've been, you know, I've I've been to hundreds of away games over, over the years, and the policing of football fans is a disgrace. Uh, the stewards are often heavy-handed. Um, we had a story even a couple of weeks ago was at Stevenage where um, there were female fans being asked to show their bras and, and and things like this, which is obviously way over the line of what's acceptable um, in terms of. You know, broadly violence. You don't often see violence, fan-to-fan violence, at, at football in England anymore. You know, I, I've been in countries where, like Argentina, and in Greece, where genuinely dreadful things happen. But in England, we don't really have these problems. So, the the policing is still stuck in that kind of Thatcherite 1980s sort of view of football fans, which um, has never really worn off. And I, I don't understand why uh, they're still so over the top when it comes to this. If you watch the the footage and you know the, the footage where the alleged assault took place, the steward himself actually has a swat at Aguero while, rather than the other way around, from what I've seen. And, and you're right, the guy's been pinned to the floor by five men as if he's some sort of incredible Hulk figure rather than just the guy who's had a couple of beers on the south coast. Um, Spurs takeaways from you, Jack. Um, yeah, this was a really bad day for Spurs. I mean, it's easy to get. I mean, the the obvious thing is Wembley, where they've now they've conceded a last minute winner and a last minute equaliser. Any theories for why Wembley would be a problem for them? Well, I think it's, I mean, one unfamiliarity itself. I think the lack of of the atmosphere. I think Spurs were in in the same way that West Ham were carried by the Upton Park atmosphere in their final season. There, I think Spurs were carried by the atmosphere at White Hart Lane last season which is why they didn't lose a Premier League game then. I think they won their last 16 on the trot at home. And they now drop more points and at Wembley. And they now don't have that. More drop, uh, more drop points at Wembley in their first two games there than the entirety of last season at White Hart Lane. Exactly, yeah. And, but, you know, eventually that first one will come and eventually they will familiarise themselves with Wembley and that issue will go away. But there's a bigger issue here, which is that last year Spurs were so good in part because they had Danny Rose and Carl Walker, the two best fullbacks in the country, 
Uh, now, Danny Rose is recovering from knee surgery and wants out, and Carl Walker pays for City. And the fact is that Ben Davis and Kieran Trippier aren't as good. Um, and Spurs' big problem is that they can't move the ball as quickly in wide areas. They can't get around the sides. They can't get the good crosses in. Teams know that if they defend narrow, they'll get away with it. And because Spurs have got no good winger options off the bench, um, then the whole team doesn't work as well. I mean, they did create enough chance in, in the second half to win this game, but they weren't nearly as good as they would have been in the equivalent games last year. And I think that, and you know, unless they can improve in these areas, then I think they're in serious trouble. Other results from the weekend, uh, Chelsea beating Everton 2-0, immensely impressive. Uh, Miguel Delaney was there for us and said that it re-established Chelsea as title favourites ahead of Man City, who both of you have said are spluttering a little. West Brom continue their good start, even though Peter Crouch got a late equaliser for Stoke. That was 1-1. And we had goalless draws between Huddersfield and Southampton and also Watford and Brighton, where Miguel Britos, I don't know if you saw that, Jack, one of your favourite players, put in a horror tackle. It was really bad. Like One I, of the worst tackles I I've love seen Ritos. in the Premier League for a long time. I will always defend him. He's a, he's a good defender. He's a great guy. Uh, I have campaigned for him to get a UK passport to be <laughs> so that we can get him on the plane to Russia next year. But this tackle wasn't good. No. And uh, I couldn't really go uh, through today's show without talking transfers because it is deadline day on Thursday. Uh, a question for each of you. The biggest deal you expect to go through before Thursday. I'll start with you, Critch. Biggest, biggest in terms of shock or biggest in terms of money or both. Both shock and money. Um, you know what? I think there's a lot up in the air. I think Alex Oxley Chamberlain to Chelsea is 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 quite a major deal to be honest because it just confirms everything that we've been talking about Arsenal on the back of the weekend. Um, they're selling a young promising player to one of their closest rivals. Is he that young and promising anymore? I think. As Jack said before, a different manager in the top six would have got a lot more out of him. And he still has, you know, I know I know, he's getting older, but he still has that level within him that um, that can be raised. And who's to say Conte's not going to do it? And and only, and only consign Arsenal to these outside this to, uh, top four. I think uh, it's interesting as well because Chelsea do look to be trying to buy British. And given the current situation, I think 35 million is not a bad deal. He's incredibly versatile. Jack, biggest deal you expect to go through before Thursday? I think Tottenham will end up getting Ross Barkley. You do? Yeah, I mean, it, well, I don't think it'll be as big a fee as Oxley chamberlain I mm-hmm. imagine it'll probably be around mid-20s, similar to what they're going to play. Chelsea are also interested in Barkley, no? Yeah, yeah, they are. Uh, but but you I think Spurs have I just a... think Spurs need, I think Spurs need to do it. Like, they... There's such the the issue with this time of year is that teams have already had three games. They've seen what the holes in their squad are, where they need to improve. And Spurs definitely need some more invention. So I'm sure that I'm sure they will get this one done. Speaking of Spurs, they've got to be a candidate for my next question, the most active Premier League club before Thursday, Jack. Well, yeah, I mean Spurs I mean Spurs are gonna get Juan Foy, the Argentinian centre back, yes. and I think they'll probably get Barkley. They'd love to get a wide player too. I mean, the most active clubs will probably be you know, someone towards maybe the West Ham end of the market or uh, Newcastle or the kind of team who thinks, oh no, we're going to be in a relegation struggle. Quickly, let's get four freebies and loans and someone who, you know, played Champions League a few years ago. Uh, So you often see lots of kind of bad transfers done uh, rather than the big teams who ought to have most of their players lined up by now. Yeah, I I think Palace could well be the most active just in terms of, they're looking to bring in three or four, but I think a couple could go. The, the interest in Andros Townsend from Leicester, 
Um, Leicester actually seem like they could make a couple of big splashy ones towards the end of the window. They are interested in Mamadou Sacco, although I think he could end up back at Selhurst Park. Critch, most active Premier League club. Yeah, again, I was thinking Palace simply because of the work that needs to be done there. Although, you know, with so much upheaval, if the board does go this week, that throws another spanner in the works in terms of who, what personnel they would like to get in. Um, and again, Chelsea, because um, to make up for lost time, in a sense, uh, we've heard about all these British homegrown players that they'd like to bring in. I expect Conte will be banging on the door of the, uh, the transfer committee or whoever it is there to try and bring these players in. So, yeah. Uh, what resolutions do we think uh, for the there are kind of three big Premier League sagas that are unresolved at the moment we've seen most of them sort themselves out but we're still waiting on Alexis Van Dijk and Coutinho to see where they're going to end up Coutinho Liverpool say they're going to stay uh, they're not going to sell he has to stay he's just uh, passed a medical with Brazil that said he's got absolutely no back problem and it may have been emotionally or stress induced uh does that change anything for you, or you just think that's a Liverpool player? There's no way he he comes back shortly from South America for a medical with with Barcelona, is there? I I don't think so. I think Liverpool have been 100% absolutely clear on this that they have no intention of selling him, and you you can criticise them and say that they boxed themselves into a corner somewhat with that statement, and maybe they have done considering the quite incredible amounts of money that Barcelona are offering, but I don't see any I don't see any way that Coutinho leaves. I think this. We, we all treated the uh, injury story with a hint of scepticism yeah. and maybe rightly so, considering that he's now fit to play for, for Brazil. But um, when, when all that is around a player, perhaps it is just best to keep them out of the team, whichever way do possible. Do you think the interest in Thomas Lamar changes anything to do with Coutinho? Or do you think that's a, that, that's a separate case? I think that's a separate case. I think okay. Liverpool are looking to make a, make a statement, make an impact. They've got Cater done yesterday, an excellent deal in itself. And... I don't. I don't see Lamar. If Lamar comes in before the end of the window, I don't see that affecting Coutinho's future. Alexis Sanchez, Jack. Uh, reports today. Um, we haven't carried it yet, but I've seen it in uh, the Mirror. John Cross reporting that Arsenal have received a bid from Manchester City for Alexis Sanchez, which is cash plus Raheem Sterling. Do you think this will change Arsenal's stance? Will they soften? Will they eventually give in and sell? I just think it would be an an abject surrender for Arsenal to sell him now. Even Arf- if they're getting a player of Sterling's quality in return. Yeah, I mean, Sterling isn't as good as Sanchez. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I mean, he's not even, I mean, I'm a big fan of Sterling, but he's not nearly as good as Sanchez. It would be so, it would just be such a failure to get rid of him. It would be, uh, even after what happened at Anfield the other day, I think it would be do even more damage to self-esteem in the club if they were to back down at the very end of the window on this. And does anyone have a view on Virgil van Dijk? He's obviously gone through the mill this summer. Uh, he had the the whole situation where they're tapping up. Uh, Liverpool had to officially withdraw their interest, although we know that they are still interested. Chelsea, uh, another club that want to sign van Dijk. Critch, any view? Do you think that will happen before Thursday, or do you think that's just too difficult? I think uh, a lot hinges on Liverpool and we were hearing a lot about how they were only going to make the move if they got a green light from Southampton. Yeah. And I can I can probably say for sure that Southampton are never going to say, yes, Liverpool, please come and sign our player because they're pretty sick of Liverpool doing that. Um, so it depends on whether, from Liverpool's side, whether whether they chance their arm and make the bid. Um, I would say as time ticks on, they've nothing really to lose. I mean, the tapping up thing has been, it's been and gone, the dust has settled. If they want this player, they should maybe just give it a go and see 
see if they can potentially tempt Southampton into selling him because Van Dijk is adamant at the moment that he's not going to play. The relations between him and the club have broken down basically entirely. Um, this is the time to do it. Time's ticking. They need to just move. Van Dijk? I think he'll end up at Liverpool. I think he'll end up at Liverpool. I think so, yeah. I think, you know, so, I mean, Saints have already replaced him. They signed... Wesley Hood. Yeah, and they mm. gave Maya Yoshida a big new contract. Yes. Uh, which makes me think, I mean, in a way that, say, Liverpool haven't replaced Coutinho, Arsenal haven't replaced Alexis Sanchez. So I think he'll go. So, Virgil van Dijk to Liverpool, thanks Jack Pickbrook. That wraps up uh, our transfer talk and indeed the podcast uh, for the week. Uh, if you catch us next week, we'll be back on our usual day of Monday for a look at how the international week has gone, a look ahead to the Premier League's return with several jobs already on the line and some title contenders already beginning to fall away. As ever, I remind you to subscribe to the podcast and if you like it, then please, please, please do leave a review as it helps more listeners find us and allows us to rise above the noise as well as you to submit your questions. So without further ado, I must thank the High Priest of Hyphenated Surnames, it's Jack Pitbrook. Thank you, Ed. And the Archbishop of Chorley, the smile that lights up every room. Thank you, Mark Critchley. Thanks. I have been Ed Malian. This has been the Indie Football Podcast. We'll be back soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.